Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Paul Sylvia, a professor at UNC Greensboro. Dr. Sylvia, thank you so much for coming back on Lost in Citations. Thanks for having me back, Jonathan. As you mentioned in your email correspondence, it was much easier to book you on the show this time. Why, why was that? It's just, it's just the, you know, the chaos of the semester ebbs and flows. And I think sometimes it's just e like it's just easier to find something earlier in the semester just by a weird coincidence. The anarchy of, of faculty meetings and other schedule sort of schedule parasites hadn't swooned and, and taken over. So slow January, slow January. You know, after these interviews, I should create a whole new <laughs> list of keywords. I like that S schedule parasite. Can you totally throw that so in? True. Can you throw that in up in an upcoming academic paper? That would, that would be I, should, I should. It is the the meetings. They are a plague. See, that's interesting because you said I think of the email. Yeah, January is good. It's it's pretty quiet here in UNC Greensboro. So for me, so I, I have a different schedule than you. So I, I'm off now. Like I'm not our teaching. Hmm. Is finished, so I kind of assumed that you. This is so interesting. So you actually thought in the beginning of the term, when all the chaos is, that's the best time to schedule the recording with you. Yeah, because there's always a slight delay. Like there's okay. there's a sort of um, either a wisdom or foolishness of the crowds, or everyone is is so busy the first week they just don't they don't schedule these sorts of meetings. Like like people would not like seek to hold like large kinds of different kinds of meetings in the first week. And they'll just wait for the, for the so-called dust to settle in like say the second or third week. And all that does is defer the big cloud of dust to weeks two or three. It's, it can be, it's the calm before the dust storm, I guess, on the first week of class. So how, how long have you been at UNC Greensboro now? Ooh, boy, I started in August, uh, 2002. It's kind of my first, my first real job. And so it's been over 20 years so you're the top. You're the Tom Brady of psychology. Mm. <laughs> Maybe in in some limited respects. I have to admit, I don't follow. I don't follow football all that ah, well. Okay. All I know about Tom Brady is that he appeared uh, in a lot of cringy, cringy commercials for cryptocurrency, and then oh, those vanished. Yeah, you know it's funny. Larry David turned out to be right. <laughs> I know. It's the odd. The odd part of that whole thing. All right. Well, let's um, let's say the reason why you're on the show today. Uh, the reason why is to talk about one of your books. And this is a recent book. It's called Researching Daily Life, A Guide to Experience Sampling and Daily Diary Methods. And the publisher is uh, American Psychology Association, right? Yep. APA Books. Uh, you have you have a few of those with 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 them. How, how did you become affiliated with that publisher? It seems like that's Actually, very prestigious to me. They're a, they're a nice publisher, so they're they're known to most most of your listeners who work in academics know them um, as the the tyrants, <laughs> the benevolent tyrants uh, behind the APA style guide. Mm -hmm. So they are APA Books is the publisher of a kind of shepherd keeper of APA style and they publish a lot of other stuff too. And I, I first got in touch with them, uh, with the first edition of how to write a lot, which we talked mm. about on the last podcast. That's yep. how I connected with them. And we, we published some other books. This book was the, the last book I did with, uh, Linda McCarter, who is, who I, who I met with, 
how to write a lot. She retired um, not long after this book was was published. I I fear the book drove her to it. Um, but so it was a uh, yeah. I worked uh, on many 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 books with with Linda over the years, and this was this was the last one. But they're a great publisher. They're very small, and I think like in a lot a lot of fields have publishers that are connected with major scholarly societies, and they they tend to have more of a sense of mission with the with the books they take on, mm. and they're more willing to sort of try out different kinds of projects, maybe take some risks. So they're. Um, they're not a very large publisher in the world of psychology in some respects, given the the size of the, the organization behind them and just the gushing oil wealth that comes in from the style manual, I must imagine. Mm. <laughs> and you have a co-author here, Catherine Cotter. Is that a, a PhD yes. student of, of yours? Yes. So uh, Catherine Cotter is uh, one of my recent uh, students I worked with. She got her dissertation here working with me. And she was a graduate student at the time we wrote this together. And I think you said in an email, did you write this during COVID? A big part of it. Yeah, it was (laughs) sort of surreal. Speaking of daily life, I suppose. Right. Um, Okay. So I'll just tell you a quick background about how I, I came upon this. So I, I am in the process of, uh, in our PhD program, it's a, you have to go through a confirmation. Do you have something mm-hmm. similar in yours? I or, think so. There's like, yeah. Some, some sort of ritualistic step to be like a <laughs> dissertation candidate or some, some label like that. Yes. It's, it's, I have to go through this process before I can officially collect data. So I'm kind of in this thing where, you know, figuring out the theoretical framework and the methodology, and uh, my advisors have been great. And so what, what I was doing is I was just focusing on the methodology so much. And they said, well, how does it fit into the framework? I said, wait a second. No, I want to do this. Said, well, back up a second. Where does it fit? And so I was really trying to do a longitudinal study. And I was looking for you know, an event that happens in the classroom. And I said, mm-hmm. okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll put out a survey each week and I'll get some data points. And then, then afterwards, I'll do some interviews to triangulate and it'll be great. And they said, well, well, what exactly? And they, they kept, you know, they were, I got to give them uh, credit. They did a really good job of sort of guiding me from not walking into the street and getting hit by a bus without <laughs> like, grabbing me by the collar. Sort of just kept gradually. And so finally, I got into reading about... Um, experience sampling methods. And then I was mm-hmm. reading about it and reading about it. And then I said, you know what? I need to, pro- I need to procrastinate. So this is, this is enough reading. Um, I'm going to go look at, uh, Paul Sylvia's website again, cause that was really funny. And there's jokes there and jokes that I like, even though I've read them before, I'm going to read them again. Cause that's more fun <laughs> than reading about this. So I go to your website and I'm just like reading through the jokes and I'm laughing again at the same jokes. Oh, this is a great way to, uh, procrastinate. And then I saw at the bottom of one of your pages, and I think I had seen it before, you, you sort of explicitly say, I am interested in experience sampling methods. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. And then I, I looked more and then I said, oh my gosh, he wrote a book on experience sampling methods. I'm going to buy this book right now. <laughs> and I'm going to procrastinate from reading it by reaching out to him and see if he'll talk to me. Um, so it, it was, it's... Uh, what is that? Uh, serendipitous? It is. Um, and I'm actually going to be scaling back the amount of interviews I do. And uh, so I'm really glad I was able to talk to you about it because I am sort of in the thick of it, so to speak, with this methodology. So thank you for writing this book. Oh, no, great. In, in fact, you're, 
you're you're kind of like our our mental kind of prototypical audience member for the book because these these kinds of methods have been around for a while mm. but they've been they've been they started really picking up steam in the 70s and 80s but they've been really hot the last you know 10 10 15 years and so a lot of people are in this situation where they kind of see the virtue of it and they want to do it in their work and they're usually a graduate student or a new postdoc a new faculty member but they didn't work with somebody who did it. So they didn't, mm. they didn't learn the method in kind of the apprenticeship way that they learn other methods. They, they want to do it, but for whatever reason, there's no one to show them how to do it. And it is, uh, like any method, it, it, it could be a little bit forbidding, like anything that's a little bit offbeat can be a little bit forbidding to learn on your own just from the internet. So yeah, we thought we'd write a book. Well, I think you had a line in the book. I mean, I'm not going to quote it perfectly, but you said something. Most people that enter this methodology are either sort of scared or overly confident. <laughs> it's so it's really true. <laughs> um, I would say I'm somewhere in the middle uh, because I, I think the, the reason why this methodology works for the study that I'm doing, and we can get into the types of experience sampling methods in the one that I chose, mm -hmm. is because it it is related to longitudinal studies. Yes. Right. And, but it's, it's, it, it, it offers more opportunities to actually get what you want. So someone that's into longitudinal studies, this is a great book to read just to sort of expand your viewpoint on what you can do. Because again, I kept on walking in, in well, I tried to get hit by a bus over and over again <laughs> by limiting myself where this, this methodology does not limit you as much as some sort of just sticking in one domain. Right. Yeah. And I think it's, um, because when people think think of longitudinal studies, they they tend to think of things that are like epics. You know, some like there are longitudinal studies in psychology that have been going on for decades, or longitudinal studies of children's growth that last for five years. You know, the typical National Institutes of Health longitudinal study might be about five years, but a longitudinal study could also be over the course of a class session. Mm. It could be over the course of half an hour spent with somebody. It, it could be over a short period of time, but just sampled really intensively when you think that something is changing, not on the order of, you know, months or years, but maybe on the order of days or, or hours or minutes. So it, it is like a longitudinal study, but really cranked up on a much, a much shorter time scale. And I apologize to people if you hear sounds in the background. My, my neighbor has been working on their house for about a year now, and it's been really fun. <laughs> uh, here's, what, here's what I'm thinking I'll do. I'm going to ask you a whole bunch of questions. And what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to save the questions that are really just meant for me for the end of the podcast. <laughs> sure. uh, because I do have uh, a few of those. So just, just to be nice to the listeners, in case you're not so interested on specifics to what I'm doing, uh, I'll try to save those. I'll try to save those to the end. Okay, sure. so, so let's just ask some basic questions. Um, when or or why did you first get interested in this methodology? How did you come about it? Mm. I have to admit, I'm I'm almost not entirely sure. I think <laughs> I, so. I got my PhD in 2001. It was definitely something in the air, mm -hmm. and in the field of motivation and emotion, this was always kind of a big deal because especially for looking just how emotions change during the day. Like the emotion psychologists were 
were really kind of early adopters of experience sampling methods, especially back in the 80s when you did this work with like pagers and beepers. Mm. And uh, which seems kind of sketchy in hindsight, given our stereotypes of people who walk around with pagers and beepers <laughs> back in the 80s. But yeah, it was one of those things. And when I was here at UNC Greensboro, um, a good friend of mine who uh, works here for a very long time as well, Tom Quapple, he, I think he had some friends who did it. And just by coincidence, we were at kind of one of these, um, you know, faculty members interviewing for a job, job candidate was there. There's kind of like a little reception. We had both seen a listserv email where someone was offering a workshop on it. Hmm. And I think he mentioned it, I mentioned it. We both realized we're both maybe interested in doing it. And I think in the sense of, you know, misery loving company, we're like, let's just, let's just jump in and do this. Let's, let's learn this together. And so we, kind of formed a little joint lab. We got some readings. We, we read a lot of books, people in the area who, um, were really generous with their time with us would, you know, what they would, they would come on over to campus. We'd buy a Mexican food at like the really terrible restaurant across the street from campus. And <laughs> they would offer some tips. And in a way, the book kind of grew out of that, that, you know, we, we basically self-taught ourselves the method, mm. We made a lot of mistakes, a lot of, a lot of hard lessons were learned, but then we, you know, we, we did this work together for so long. We, you know, we're always training new cohorts of graduate students and new cohorts of undergraduate research assistants. And, uh, I think through training students how to do it and just, you know, collaborating with others and the scope of our work, we, I got some ideas of how to, how to teach it. I think part of why I I thought of writing the book at the time I did was I was working with Catherine and she was, you know, nearing the end of, of graduate school. And it felt like a kind of book I didn't necessarily want to write by myself. Hmm. And she's uh, really just a very talented researcher and a very strong writer and really an expert at these methods in her own right. And I thought it might be fun if she wanted to write it, it would be a nice book to write. It would wrap up about the time she's out of graduate school. Um, like it can help position her well for a lot of things. Mm. And I also just had the sense she's, she's the kind of person who just might write, might write a lot of books in her career. And I think writing your first book with someone else is a good way to, um, a good way to learn it. She's probably going to listen to this and saying, there is no way I'm ever writing another book. Those cars don't fade. Um, but I hope, I think she will. And just like the first book I wrote, we talked about the last podcast, uh, someone who I worked with as an undergrad, Shelley Duvall, he asked me if I wanted to help him write this book. And he didn't think it was really strange to write a book with a, a doctoral student somewhere. Um, it was in a way it was sort of that model sort of coming full circle. That's cool. Have you gotten any feedback on your, on the previous episode? Cause it uh, compared to a lot of our other episodes, it seemed to have more downloads than others, but I didn't, <laughs> see, I didn't see any links on your website or anything. So it just got passed around in the, the dusty library of UNC Greensboro. I've been meaning to do it. I, I, I haven't been to update that, that, Google webpage. Our university may be losing all Google products. Oh, no. so I haven't been, uh, uh, you know, one of those things, but my, my kids found it unbelievably hilarious as I thought that they would. They, they listened to it. And, Did they know some of those stories? Uh, mostly it did 
spark my daughter in particular to realize that there's probably a large number of stories from my wayward <laughs> youth that she's never heard yet. And she's <laughs> curious to curious to learn more about. Um, but I think, yeah, I think people got, people got a kick out of it for sure. Yeah, I, I definitely did. It, it was kind of interesting because I can't remember exactly when we recorded it. Was it the day after the Kansas Jayhawks won the, the championship? <laughs> so that's March, yep. right? Yep, it's like and, kind of early April, yeah. And then we didn't release it until September um, because I wanted to sort of give it like a, a, a good push. And and maybe selfishly, I just wanted didn't want to give it away <laughs> to anybody else. Uh, I listened to it multiple times before it was released. It was just sort of comforting. I had just moved into a new house and I thought, you know, this is just such a comforting conversation. So I, I don't know if that's odd to you, but. Um, it's I, actually not really that odd. <laughs> writing is just such a. I don't know, writing is both very vexing, but it could also be oddly cozy. Hmm. Um, but anyway, so it was, it's great to like touch base again. All right. Well, let's let's get into some other questions about about. Uh, ESM. And again, I'm really holding back from asking specific questions to my project. So I think I should get some credit for that. Um, failures. So what, what, what kind of, uh, potholes did you step in early on that people can learn from? Yeah, I think the, I think the challenge with this kind of work is really what you're trying to do is you're trying to, to study people in their natural environments like you're trying to get like kind of a sense of what's happening in their their daily life, and that's that's challenging for for social scientists, behavioral scientists, because you're used you're used to doing this in the lab. Mm. So when you're in the lab, you do work in lab because you have a lot of control, and your lab might be like some gross, dusty cinder block hovel full of old flickering fluorescent tubes, but it's yours and you kind of control that environment. And like everyone who comes in the study, they are in that same environment and they might get like asbestos poisoning from that environment, but it is like a constant environment. And this is basically our lab here on campus. So whereas you study people in their everyday lives, Wow, the everyday environments are, are just so different from each other. Mm. Even people who are all students or who all ostensibly have similar lifestyles, just when they wake up and go to sleep, their daily activities, how similar each day is to the other. Um, they're just, <coughs> they're really wide ranging. And so the kinds of questions you ask the kinds of questions you might ask on a survey, like I'm going to do a, a one-shot survey, a cross-sectional survey, the questions you might ask on a survey don't necessarily make a lot of sense in the context of someone's daily life. And it's mm. coming up with trying to develop good questions that made sense. It's mm. something that my friend Tom, Tom Cropple, has a particular genius for, I would say. And so trying to take people's perspective a little better, like making questions that make sense in all the different kinds of contexts people find themselves in. And beyond that, there's this, there's this issue of just trying to find the right sweet spot of how many times do you want to ask people what they're doing? So mm. the classical experience sampling approach, you might randomly interrupt people a few times a day, some number of times a day, every day, for some number of days and it's 
it's hard to know how how many times can you just interrupt people to ask them what they're doing right now before they just get exasperated mm. and, and tune you out and like how many days is too many days you know will people do a survey four times a day eight times a day ten times a day um if you interrupt people to ask them questions should you ask them just two hmm. or three or ten and getting i think just building a sense of intuition over what works what doesn't i think a lot of it is just nuts and boltsy stuff that whatever area work people work in so much of learning it is just the greasy nuts and bolts like I, I know someone who does kind of corpus linguistics work and I wouldn't even know where to get started, mm. but he knows there's all these, I don't even, I don't even know what the plural of corpus is. <laughs> Corpuses, <laughs> Cor, corpi, corpies. Um, so there's just all, you know, what software you use, where do you find it? What's the permissions? Like whatever kind of work people do, it's all, a lot of it's nuts and bolts and tacit knowledge. And I think trying to figure all that stuff ourselves on the fly was useful and um, because i think it, it kind of brings it up into your your awareness and you have to it makes it a bit easier to to teach but we made we made many many mistakes you you learn a lot um one of the main issues in this kind of work is since you're repeatedly sampling you're asking people surveys many times rather than one times it's like, how are you doing this? And back in the old days, we would use Palm Pilots, which mm. I'm not sure if those are before your time or not. Uh, I think I think they were around. They were. You would know they were around if it, if it sounded like, like you know, a nuclear alarm klaxon going off. Those things were just like buggerishly loud. Um, yeah, like beepers and pagers and just how do you how do you actually contact people to fill out a survey and then collect that survey data from them is, was always a, you know, there's sort of technical challenges that were, they were part of it too. So I don't know if there's like one big pothole, but just like a long, a long, a long rutted well, road we that got was, dragged along. That was one thing I liked about the structure of the book. And again, the book is researching daily life, a guide to experience sampling and daily diary methods you kind of outlined in the beginning of the book, we're, we're going to help you avoid some of these pitfalls along the way. And, and like you said, the, the nuts and bolts, um, I, I found many, many sections useful. Okay. Um, and and there, there are certain things, again, I'm really holding back with the questions I want to ask for my study. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I like, oh, I didn't think about that. Oh, oh yeah, I didn't think about yep. that. Oh, mm, yep. Those are all things we did not think about either, Jonathan, I will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about what about successes? Uh, looking at your website again, if you just type Paul Sylvia, you'll find hopefully, unless Google is is away by the time you listen to this episode. Um, is this primarily the methodology you you use now with with your? I see that you're interested in aesthetics. I think some of your PhD students are are investigating human experience in museums and these sorts of things. Is this pretty much what you're, what you're using for all of your studies? It's, it's probably like our, our biggest method COVID threw a serious wrench into it. <laughs> so, so we're building, we're building back up just the human 
research with human participants got mm. got really rough and you know stopped completely for for a while there but it is yeah it is it's something this is very interesting because it's like 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 all kind of research tools the farther you get into it the more complex it is i think for successes we we've we've tried this in some unusual contexts, like in sort of behavioral trials like we used it in a psychotherapy trial for adults with major depression mm. they had a kind of a complex design because they were in one of two psychotherapy treatments these these clinical sessions would last for up to four months mm. there was lots of different experience sampling designs being used the privacy issues were intricate um we worked on other studies where we've done sort of ambulatory sort of biological measures like measuring kind of cardiac parameters with equipment people wear around mm. so this, there's i think as we got farther into it our ambitions uh scaled up a bit um you know studies where you they got a little bonkers after all like a study where you you a study of creativity where you do brain scanning tasks. So you have sort of brain scan images. People also do intelligence and cognitive tasks, personality tasks, and they do a week of experience sampling to look at imagination and daily life. And somehow you magically link all this together, allegedly, I think. So that's, it's been well, I think working with, with special populations has, has been interesting. But I think this this was also part of the motivation for the book that a lot of times people, uh, going back to sometimes people are just overexcited and overconfident, mm. is they do go to a conference or they see someone give a talk where they uncorked like this really cool high tech method, maybe with you know ambient noise sensors and musicians while they practice while also looking at accelerometers to see how much they move and mm. um, and that's cool, but you know, research is always about like the fundamentals, the design, the assessment. And I think sometimes people get, they got kind of blind by like, you know, the real shiny, cool thing. And they just want to jump into like the deep end of like the most complex, intricate, expensive forms when they need to start with the basics. Mm. Have you ever, this is kind of a, a sidebar. Have, have you ever thought about uh, some sort of an experiment where, one group of people is getting, uh, I don't know, the beepers and the, the prompts to, I don't know, reflect on something, and one group is not. And then you measure whether the assessment itself has an effect on people. Oh, this is this is certainly something people have have looked at because it is a it's a legitimate concern. Because if you probably people would call this reactivity that when you ask people something over and over and over again for days or weeks, it's not, it's not nuts to think that this is changing what you think you're assessing. Like, um, a good example, this kind of method's always been really popular. People who studied substance abuse and misuse, especially to look at cravings and when people use and, uh, you know, things like that. And, you you can find that if you ask people eight or ten times a day about their cigarette cravings or poly drug abuse, that you can change it. Just like when people 
you know, people want to save money, they start tracking all their spending. When people mm. want to sleep better, they start tracking their sleep. And there are there are contexts where doing this really can change what you're assessing. Uh, and it's likely to happen. It's likely to happen if you're studying, if you're really focusing on one thing and your participants know you're focusing on that one thing and it's something that they are kind of thinking about and want to change. So, for example, smoking cessation would certainly be one. Anything where you're trying to get people to behave in a more healthy way, that's the kind of circumstance where, where you can... In general, it's surprisingly not a problem, mostly because you're asking about 10 or 20 things, so nothing really stands out. And it's you're often interested in something that people aren't... It's not a big issue in their life that they're really looking to, to change necessarily. But like for, it, is, here, it is an issue. Well, here's what I'm kind of and this was a, the path of research i was on i'm not on it anymore but i'm still really interested on it Let, let's say that you have a group of people who have anger issues mm-hmm. right and they're in some i don't know some sort of counseling right and i don't know maybe both populations are in the same counseling session and then you you say you're going to do this uh experience ex- esm uh study where you're going to like randomly ask them how they're feeling uh, through the course of maybe, I don't know, two weeks or something. But then the one group you don't send them, you don't send any beeps to. And then the one group over two weeks you send, I don't know, maybe once or twice a day or something. Mm-hmm. And then see if the, I don't know how you would, you would triangulate it, but then see how, if that, so for example, like if you're, if you got a beep, right. And you have anger problems and you just get this beep says, on a scale of one to ten, like how angered are you feeling right now? Then that person has to take a second and evaluate, reflect, appraise. These are all mm-hmm. coping mechanisms, right? Wouldn't that be a way to sort of I don't know, I'm just wondering if that's a factor that could actually help somebody with their anger, the actual assessment system. Yeah, and this this is the other side of the coin. So people who who worry about reactivity, the reason why they worry is because the other side of it is there's a long tradition in clinical psychology, this tradition called sort of behavioral assessment, self-monitoring, that uses this as a clinical tool. It's kind of old school. It's the old school stuff that, you know, the modern focus on uh, self-hacking and sort of tracking tracking and monitoring everything about you with all these wearables and apps Mm -hmm. it ultimately kind of comes out of work in the in the 70s that showed often if you just if people have a a goal to change if you just get them to track it often that's enough for like really significant change it's kind of the it's it's sort of comical it's and this is why like if someone's coming and they want to you know stop smoking you could say, all right, so for this week, we're just, we're not going to, we're not going to put any pressure on ourselves to quit here. We're just going to track. We're just going to track. We're going to be objective. We're dispassionate, not judging. Just track, get a notebook, get an app, whatever. Just track how many cigarettes you smoke. Mm-hmm. And that alone will do it. Just like when people want to, it'll have a big effect when, when people want to 
save money, you know, track every cent you spend, mm. people will start to spend less or an old <laughs> couples counseling thing is, um, part of the ethos of, of experience sampling is people generally are just not paying attention to what they're doing. And so he just, <laughs> if you just ask them how often they do something, they don't know. And they're just going right. to do something self-serving and nonsensical. And so he asks people things like, how often do you compliment your partner mm. or say nice things about your partner to them? People will just be like, all the time, <laughs> all the time. And they say, great, it should be easy to track. Here's a little notebook. And then, of course, when people do it, after a few days, they just feel like they're just like, I'm the coldest, most dispassionate person ever. How could I, you know, this is not me. So tracking is often so eye-opening, it it does most of the work sometimes. And even when it doesn't, it, it, it gets you, it really is the foundation for a lot of, a lot of behavior change. And that's why it is totally reasonable to be worried that if you ask people about something repeatedly over and over and over, that it could start to change that. Because I was thinking that could be actually a good tool for some people. Mm -hmm. Take a moment and and think about how you're feeling. So in the news recent, again, this podcast, I don't know when people are going to listen to this, but in the news over New Year's, I, I don't know if you follow the UFC, uh, Mixed Martial Arts Company. The head, I admit that I, I don't. The head, of the, <laughs> <laughs> the head of the UFC, this guy named Dana White, there was a video of him that was released in New Year's where they're at a crowded nightclub comes up to his wife who looks she just has this weird look on her face he taps her on the shoulder she slaps him in the face <laughs> oh dear and then he slaps her back and it's this huge it's this huge deal because a he came out years ago about when a fighter domestic violence in the company said you know you don't bounce back from this he's been against domestic violence um there's all these storylines that have come out of this but the thing that i was thinking about is <clears throat> If he had just gotten conditioned to take a second, even one second, right, and say, you know, how are you feeling right now and assess the situation, like, I think that would be a good useful tool for, for anybody, right? You know, you just, if, you, if you can, you know, that what count to 10 or any of that stuff, right? I think a lot of people aren't really conditioned to do that. Oh, um, yeah. There's no question. So I just think like the tool itself can, can help people. Right, I know that's sort of sort of a different conversation, but like, how would you prove the tool itself is helping people? Well, there is there is um, some people who use it kind of in the in the intervention world or kind of clinical world. They sometimes talk about they they might call it ecological momentary interventions. Okay, and they're interested in this kind of thing. Like, how could you use this kind of method to? kind of nudge change and bring about change. Um, and often it, it, it works through this process of, you know, people are, you know, people experience things, but they don't usually experience that they're experiencing them. So they yeah, don't. Yeah, you mentioned that in the book, I think. And that's a big part of, uh, I mean, a lot of, a lot of clinical modalities, that's a lot of what they're, they're trying to do is get people to, um, think about their feelings, label their feelings, recognize that they're they're feeling these feelings. It's a theme in a, in a lot of approaches, um, and it's it's useful for a lot of emotional disorders and people who are kind of impulsive, impetuous. It, it's 
it's helpful because people can people can cool their feelings or take the take the sense of urgency, the urgent need to act right away when they can kind of hold it up and and reflect on it a little bit. And this this really can be good for that. Like there's something to be said for when you interrupt people <laughs> or they could initiate the survey and they can just be able to talk about it, reflect on it. They it gives them just that little bit of psychological space to say, okay, this is you know, I've been through this before. It creates this little bit of psychological distance. Have you ever have you ever used that when you were faced with sort of an emotional feeling where you thought, okay, well, I need to kind of deal with this right now or, or are you kind of a laid back person all the time? <laughs> definitely not a, definitely not a laid back person all the time. I think as a psychologist, you just, you really get trapped in mazes within mazes in your head <laughs> uh, sometimes, but this is, this is truly the tried and true. Like, um, there's That's many funny. traditions in psychology that talk about, uh, like it's okay to be anxious. It's okay to be upset. More of a kind of mindfulness based approach is that if you, you just kind of reflect on and experience it, the, the sense of urgency, like the vital need to do something about it can dissipate. Like you can be angry, but you don't have to have like this, be angry and also have this, this urge to do really angry things. Mm. And yeah, I think that there's, there's really a lot to be said for that. Like I think for a lot of emotional disorders, um, you know, borderline personality disorder, I mean, just lots of things. This is, this is a theme through, through a lot of it is getting people to, to label, reflect on and see that, okay, I'm feeling a lot of feelings, but I can see. I can see a doorway so, out of this. So you're you're saying essentially like if you encountered someone with road rage and they pulled in front of you and stopped their car. This has happened in Japan before. This is cra- you can look up this video. There's a, <laughs> just these crazy videos where someone has road rage. They'll they'll speed around them, pull in front of them and stop. I don't know why. I don't know why. So in that situation and then that person let's just imagine that person pulls around you, stops <laughs> and comes up to your car and and banging on your window. They would see Dr. Paul Sylvia sort of like caught in a maze. Like you're th- you're like thinking about the scenario like from a psychology perspective. They would like, wow, this person's like got a blank stare. I'm not going to mess with him, and they'll run away. Is that what would happen? Probably not. What would happen? This is <laughs> I think this is where a whole different side of of psychology skills come out and in. Uh, communication and, and de-escalation techniques. Um, when when you're dealing with the very angry, is perhaps different from from people dealing with their own anger. But yeah, I thought I, I I'm surprised that's in Japan. Like I grew up in California, and this was like relatively relatively routine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't happen often. But when it the thing with Japan is that a lot of people are. I don't want to say repressed because that's kind of a negative feeling, right? They they keep their emotions in check. Mm-hmm. It's sort of part of the culture, right? But road rage incidents, when they happen, they they can be devastating. I mean, people, oh, absolutely. And even not not just road rage, any rage. There was this story in Japan. You can look it up. It was a crowded ramen restaurant. This guy, so a crowded ramen restaurant in Tokyo, lunchtime. Everyone's like, you know, wall to wall in the booth. There's, there's, you know, not much space. I guess this guy was sitting with his foot on another stool 
And I can't remember who killed who, but somebody killed the dude. Like they just, they lost it. They killed the guy in the restaurant. The police came. He was really calm. He said, that's it. My life's finished. And that was it. He just lost it. He just snapped. He just couldn't take (laughs) it anymore. So as long as you, normally in Japan, everyone's going to keep their emotions in check, but you just got to be careful if someone like uncorks, because that's the time you got to (laughs) run. (laughs) <laughs> we certainly have that here let me tell you um all right let, let me ask you some more questions then we can get into my research I sure can, i can uh tell people all right so again the book is researching daily life a guide to experience sampling and daily diary methods now in the book you kind of take us all the way through you know these are the pitfalls mm-hmm. that that you should avoid um, here's how you should set up your system. Here's how you collect your data. Here's your, how you analyze your data. And then the last chapter is presenting, mm-hmm. uh, presenting your data. So I just, I wanted to ask, you know, any, any uh, strange conference experiences, you know, where someone stand up and shook their fist and challenged you or um, <laughs> <laughs> did you, I mean, we always have somebody in the audience that's going to throw you for a loop or something. I mean, you kind of, intimated it seemed that you have to be on your guard or in some ways i don't i don't know it seemed like there were some hidden messages in that chapter i mean were there any stories i think it's more whenever um kind of niche methods tend to attract kind of passionate tightly knit communities i think this is true for all methods for all areas like if and so if you give a talk on experience sampling methods you're going to get you're going to get people who show up to the talk because they do that. Like they might not okay. be interested in the topic at all, but they, because they do that method and they're just kind of curious to see what you're up to. I think the most common risk is people, people hijacking the Q and a with mm. like really technical arcane questions because they're just really interested to know like, Oh, what were your signaling parameters or how did you do this? Or what? Were yeah, that's what I'm going to do in about five minutes. And I think that's the kind of, and so you might be giving a talk on, you know, you know, you're using experience sampling and goal setting, major depressive disorder. And it's like 90% people interested in the major depressive disorder part. And then 10% people interested in like whatever obscure software you use, like call people (laughs) on their cell phones and um, what did the IRB say? And so that's, that's mostly it. I think as the method has become better known, that has all cooled off a little while. But by far the biggest question you'll get is the very reasonable one of, do you think asking this question over and over and over either drove these people to madness or <laughs> did it change what you were, did it change the results you got? Which are, which are sensible. All right. What about, what about feedback from reviewers? Have those changed over the years? Is there a certain sort of feedback that people need to be aware? Now, again, in the book, you do a good job of what of what what people should include in their methods section and how they should should write up the chapter or the article or whatever. Um, but what about your general ideas about feedback from reviewers? Publishing this work can be challenging because it's not it, it's not so widely done that everyone knows knows the nuts and bolts of it. I think it's gotten easier recently. Like in that chapter, we sort of, we kind of summarized and added to some kind of emerging kind of publication standards for things you should always talk about. And I think that's been helpful to give some structure. 
the most problem common problem is the reviewers and maybe the editor just don't know a whole lot about this issue mm. and it just seems weird and fringe the bigger problem i think is that this you can you can have an avalanche of results it's not a very focused kind of research often when people are publishing studies there there's a lot they want to say about someone's daily life and things can get out of hand and this is probably generally true for publishing research articles that researchers get like overly enamored and overly precious with their own data and everything is interesting and mm. every last like secondary and tertiary thing needs to be in there but these these can yield a lot of results and so you get some awkward big tables and lots of findings and it it can just lead to us a, a common thing we've seen is lead to a sense that these are just scattered or it's hard to find a take-home message in it mm. uh, now i think that is um communicating what you found is is i think challenging just given that you're just learning so much about people and you have to kind of rein it in and keep it focused these are often the kinds of projects that lend themselves to like longitudinal projects in other contexts like one big study yields several papers rather than one big sort of monstrous paper mm. that tries to do everything all at once. That makes, that makes sense. Do you, or have you, I don't, I don't remember if you mentioned it in the book, do you use interviews to connect some of the dots depending on a certain sample size? We haven't, but people, people do. And it's a, it's a cool idea. It's something that, uh, Catherine, my co-author, was looking to do for some for some projects before COVID jumped in. It is something people have done. Um, for example, there's a, a great project. It was I can't remember the names of all the authors, but it's associated with Paul Heckert in the Netherlands. He's a art and design researcher, and they're interested in people's emotions, uh, people's emotions and their encounters with consumer products. Mm. So these are things like... What was the name? I might write that down. His name is Paul Heckert. Paul Heckert. Okay. It's a great... He's, he's done a lot of neat work and just kind of the aesthetics of designed objects. And it was a neat study because he was looking at people's emotions with the objects they interact with. That mm. These are humble objects, you know, like the... This was the Netherlands, of course, so like a bicycle bell was one because bicycles and bicycle bells loom large in the mm. Dutch cultural consciousness. Um, but people, they would do these daily diaries and I think of just things they did. And they, they, you'd, people would report you know, being really angry at something they were using. And, and so they, what they would do is after the experience family part of the study, they would bring them in for interviews to talk about particular to, to, to just learn more about particular things. So someone reported they were like really angry at this shampoo bottle. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, you, you know, maybe it's different in Japan, but shampoo bottle induced rage. It's not, it's not large here, but I don't know. Maybe I'm being, uh, I've never but, heard of it, but it makes sense. Like, you know, people would report a lot of different emotions. Was the top to stuck? And their hands were soapy. Yeah, it's that. It makes a lot of sense that there are some kinds of shampoo bottles that, mm. with one hand, when you're wet and soapy, it's hard to open and close. Mm. Or, I can see that now. And like you would, like, 
it's one thing just to get survey reports where people say, well, here's what I was interacting with. Here's how I felt. But it's really through, you know, the follow-up interviews that they got a lot of texture and nuance. Like, I really enjoyed using this and it was just so nicely designed. I could tell, I just had this experience that there was someone on the other end of this product who sort of, I felt like someone really cared that I enjoyed this because they clearly put a lot of thought into it. And often the opposite, like clearly they were just cheaping out and didn't care. And I sort of like, they almost felt the Mm. designer's aggression coming through in this thoughtless product. But pairing interviews is a, is a, is a great idea because you can get people to reflect on it or it could just be another layer of data. It could Mm. be, um, just a different, a different depth layer into what you're assessing. Yeah, I'm just thinking about this study. Is it like a correlation between how much IKEA furniture you put together and divorce rates? Indeed. I... <laughs> the hex wrench, hex wrench mafia. I tell you, your your wife screaming. It's not done yet. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not my fault. Um. All right. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna get into some of my questions here. So yeah, if if people want to turn off the pod, um totally understand uh again the book is researching daily life a guide to experience sampling and daily diary methods i'm going to ask some specific questions about what i'm doing and again um if, if you're not interested say la vie uh please check out citation 116 awesome conversation how to write a lot i'm one of the lucky ones that have the first edition it's hard <laughs> to get your hands on one of those uh but i guess the second edition can you still buy the first edition I I think so. There are certainly used copies used copies everywhere. Um, awesome book, really really great book. <laughs> Actually, um, before those people that don't care about my project leave, a couple questions about that. Um, yeah, how to write a lot because I was thinking about that today. So I got I've got a fairly big deadline looming, mm-hmm. um, and I, I'm an outline guy. I break it into parts. Yep. Um, I follow the, the some of the suggestions in the book, you know, wake up, go straight to the computer, that sort of thing. Um, keep track of how much work you've done. I like to keep track of times. I have to uh, to do list. I have this stuff. But one thing that I do that you, I mean, you sort of mentioned in the book, at least the first edition is, you know, keep a schedule. And then on the weekends, you know, pet your cat, you know, knit a, knit a, a hat for your dog, those sorts of things. <laughs> um one thing I have trouble doing, and I don't know if it, sometimes it's a bad thing, sometimes it's not. How do you shut off? Like, how do you, you might, and you, you mentioned in the book as well where, you know, okay, if you're, if you're really into it and you want to go for six hours, that's great. But that doesn't mean you should take off the next day, you know, keep your two hours and every day. And then sometimes I have trouble shutting off and, uh, and in other parts of my life as well. So like, I guess the question is, how do you shut off? How do you compartmentalize, prioritize? How do you put something aside? Does it occupy space in your mind when you're doing other things, where you're not present, where you're doing other things? Like, how do you, how do you do that? Because it's something I really have trouble with. And it's, that's a common thing. It is. It's something I can relate to. It's certainly something I, I hear a lot. I think, I, I think uh, quite some time ago before family life became such a hurly burly. I think a lot of people experience this like before kids or before kids, certain ages, like it's, it's, you know, you light the candle on all the ends all the time. Mm. And 
this is one of the one of the counterintuitive aspects of having a schedule is that when if you really do scheduled writing consistently for a long time, mm. your brain like uh, people who study habits, the, a lot of research on habits kind of show that your brain is habits are they would call they call them active, like they're active motivational structures, and that when you're in the time and you're in the place and you're kind of surrounded by the objects in the context, mm. your mind starts to kind of tune you in to do it. And it will also then tune you out because it's, it's time to do other things. And people who, who write by a fairly strict schedule, a lot of times these are professional writers or people who have jobs where there's only like certain blocks where they can write. If it's a really strong routine they can find it hard to feel like writing outside of their scheduled hours because mm. it's just, it's very habitual. It's like people who exercise according to certain schedules going off schedule and exercise in the evenings or like it feels weird and they don't feel motivated to do it. That, that can be helpful. I think, uh, or but I think people have to be following a schedule for a long time before that really kicks in where there's just almost a kind of a, it feels weird and you just don't feel like doing it on the weekends. I would say is the bigger context though. I think the, the litmus test, the bigger issue is, is really if just people are, are at, are at peace with their writing and they, they feel it's going well, as opposed to there's this oppressive sense that it's not getting done and it's never good enough and it's too slow and you just need to like sacrifice other stuff to get it done. I think the, the sense of, this is going well and it, it works into everything I want to do in my life is ultimately what's important. But how do you balance the thinking time or do you equate the writing time with thinking time, right? Especially someone like you, someone like me, I don't have that much going on, to be honest. I have my one big project I'm working on and it takes a lot of space. You have lots of different projects. You have lots of different PhD students. What about the thinking time? Like, do you schedule in, okay, I'm going for a 40 minute walk and I'm going to think about this project. I'm going to organize it in my head. Or do you equate that to when you're sitting down in your computer? Because everybody's a little bit different when it comes to that, right? Yeah, I think, I think for me, I, I'm definitely someone who, who thinks out loud and thinks on paper. I, oh, okay. I think like talking with the students about what they're doing is I think, think helpful for me for thinking or, um, I guess I'm just not a very kind of philosophical person with, you know, the, the tweed jacket and the ascot staring off into space, thinking, thinking deep thoughts alone in my brain. Um, which I guess we've, we've come to understand is maze like, but <laughs> I so think thinking and writing time is the same for you. Yeah. I think talking with people is kind of a thinking and reading and, but Definitely writing. Like I always, I always kind of clicked with um, William Zinser's line that you know, writing is thinking on paper. That this is how you figure out what you, where you think. For me, it's very generative. Like a lot of ideas for research come from writing about something else or talking to people, as opposed to just taking a shower or walking the dog or or trying to evade road raging Japanese <laughs> on my commute. Um, by the way, you mentioned uh, Zinsler. I, I bought that book uh, on writing well. Great recommendation. People oh, should. wonderful. Awesome, it, awesome book. I think I'm going to read it really, again, actually. 
I think he, I love that book because I think people who do uh, language teaching, which I know is a big theme for a lot of listeners of the podcast, for people who do language teaching, I think they really will click with what he's trying to do. He really he really writes with the kind of the encouraging humanity of a teacher, mm. as someone who has just been teaching writing for a long time in a lot of contexts. He's got the tough love, but he's got the the encouraging truth too. Yeah, awesome book. Well, all right. Well, last question on that. How, how do you compartmentalize or schedule your reading time? How do you balance that? I think for reading, so usually I, I'll read during the writing time. Like if, if it's reading in the sense of it's kind of connected to particular projects, I'll I'll do that during the writing time. Often on the weekends in the mornings, since I'm up way before the kids, I think a lot of that's what I'll be reading books. Like these days, a lot of it's books about statistics and data analysis. But a lot of reading is just a good thing to do with some coffee in the in the mornings on the weekends. But even then, a lot of the, the reading, it's just kind of during the day because it's kind of easier to easier to work it in then. I think bigger reading, like really kind of exploratory, generative reading a lot about, you know, big books about things I don't know much about. Those, I admit, tend to be like summer summer and break periods. Like I tend to save up some books and just burn through them in those, in those sorts of periods. Okay, great. Um, all right. Well, let's, let's jump into uh, my study. Um, yes. I have narrowed in on event-based sampling. Uh-huh. And I actually did an auto-ethnographic uh, thing uh, last mm-hmm. term on myself, and it was really, really interesting. So for people that don't know about event-based sampling, it's it's to track discrete or salient events, like as you mentioned in the book, for example, smoking a cigarette. Um, it also can be an emotional reaction to something, right, if you, mm-hmm. if you feel a certain way. And then the idea is, so instead of getting a beep from the system or from the researcher, so you signal to yourself to, to, to write about it. Right. Yes. And so I did that uh, as a pilot study on myself over the course of three months. And I ended up having 17 entries over, well, a little bit less than September 15th to December 22nd. So around that period of time, I had ended up having 17 entries and it was very revealing, uh, as far as frequency, right. Uh, day of the week or what happened the weekend before. So, I thought, okay, this is a really good way to track what I'm interested in. And so I'm going to do it, uh, well, I'm, I'm proposing to do it with, with two other people. And then the other idea is that, so at the end of the, at the, end of the, the time, we're going to do some interviews to sort of, you know, like you mentioned before, kind of nail down some of, some of these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's what I've kind of focused on. And I'm going to build like a very simple app. Where if the, if an event happens, the event that I'm investigating, they'll they'll just click the app or they'll they'll click a link on their computer. There'll be a, a a number there. They'll click it, and then we'll get the timestamp. And I guess my question is two questions. Mm-hmm. The, fir- the first question is actually three questions. Uh, something like this on the screen: Where are you? You know what happened? How are you feeling? Um, did previous events or experiences or people affect this? I was thinking like, is that, I know you don't want too much, right? Um, 
is that enough or, or, or is that too much? Is that leading the witness in some ways or, you know? In a way, it depends really what you'd like to know. So, because right, the, the event-based, these event-based designs really do well. Like there's, there's some focal event you really want to understand. Like, mm-hmm. and it's uh, people who study cravings and substance abuse, misuse, binge drinking. Um, there's a study on sort of eating disorder behavior. Uh, whenever there's like something that it happened or it didn't, it's perfect. And it's for when you really want to understand that thing. Like you're mm-hmm. not interested in the whole day or all no. that's going on, but you're really interested in like, here's something we want to go deep on. And so when it happens, like, what do we want to, what do we want to know about it? And so there's not really a right or wrong. It's more what, what would, what would you like to know? So the time, you know, when it happened is always important. So mm-hmm. getting some sort of automatic timestamp is always useful. And then what's worth asking kind of depends on what you're looking at. So like usually where people are, what they're doing are always useful just to kind of ground it in the context. If they're alone or with other people, there's lots of other things that are there, but it kind of depends on what you're, what it is you'd like to know about the thing. Like, like, so for example, one thing Catherine was really interested in was, was musical imagery. When people, when people hear music in their minds, that's not also playing in the environment, just kind of musical imagination, Mm. uh, inner music. And so what people might want to know different things about this, like what is it that's playing? Uh, in some cases it might make sense to ask, are you composing this? But with other cases, it might not make sense. Other samples, some people might want to know like how tired people are or musicological features of it. Others might not like a lot of it just depends like, okay, here's this thing you want to study. What, what do you want to know about this experience for these people that you have in front of you? And the other thing you mentioned in the book, you know, you take time to, 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 I don't know. I don't know if teach is the right word, the participants, you know, tell them you can take time to say, this is what I'm investigating. Right. And so, Yes. And it's very helpful for event-based work because it's easy to think that it's just easy to think everyone understands things the same way you do. Uh, A good example. So I know someone who does this, a common one one use of event-based work is uh, studying, uh, studying conflict in married couples. And so whenever a married couple, you know, had a, had a fight, uh, both members of the pair were supposed to get out a little notebook of surveys and they're supposed to do a survey. And I, they told me this, this tale where their participants told them that one of them was like, you're being mean, you're being mean. I'm filling out a survey. And the other one's like, Hey, we're not fighting. We're not fighting. We're just discussing. No, I think we're fighting. I'm, I'm doing a survey. He's like, don't do that survey. We're not fighting. I'm doing a survey. I'm... So, you know, an extreme case, but you know what? Just especially if it's more emotional, experiential, you want to make sure, like, okay, so here's what we mean. Like, here's what when this happens, fill out the survey, and here's what we mean by this. And just talk about it with them, answer any questions so that people know 
know what it is. It's easiest if it's kind of obvious if it happened or not. But even things that seem obvious aren't like, um, like smoking. Some people will, some cigarette smokers will say just borrowing a cigarette from a friend and taking a puff doesn't count as smoking. So that wouldn't count for them. And it probably counts for you as a researcher who's sitting smoking. So yeah, talking through and inviting questions and making sure we all kind of share an understanding of what it is. Because otherwise it's hard to get a good sense of how how often something's really happening versus how often they think it's happening according to their loose definition of this thing. All right. Here's my here's my other question. So one reason I really like this, because again, I'm I'm coming from sort of longitudinal things that I like is I, I've had problems with you know well, I've I've had issues with recall bias when I when I go yep. to conferences and, and retrospective oh, yeah. bias and we're looking for something that happened in the moment. I get that. But at least from my perspective doing this, there were certain themes and characters and situations that emerged or reemerged um, once they were established over time. Is it okay to guide the participant and say like, look, you know, where are you? What happened? How are you feeling? But don't be afraid to to build off because that's that's real life, right? Uh, you know, this happened. Oh, that made me think of this. Is that okay or we're, or we're not allowed to tell them that it's – because from my perspective, I'm looking at – so the thing I'm investigating, so it's like a clear pond. I throw a rock in the middle of the pond. That's what I'm investigating. But there's layers to it, right, over time. So are we allowed to to, to guide them or are they just going to bring it up, right? So for, let's use the, the fight, the, the marital fight. They, 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 they put an entry in about a fight and they say, well – you know, oh my gosh, this same thing happened last Tuesday. Or and then we were at the same restaurant, right? And then this character or a theme is emerging. Are you? Do you guide them to do that, or will they do this naturally? I think it's really both okay. Like I think beyond it's once you start using this method, you can you can use it for a lot of purposes. So, for example, this one project we did. Uh, it was with depressed adults who were taking part in this psychotherapy trial. One layer of it was a couple days a week, just kind of randomly selected days a week. They would they would do a daily diary, so just a, a survey about the day. But the cornerstone of it was they would get this on their cell phone. This is the days of like old school flip phones. They get this on their cell phone, and we we just ask them something like, "What are you?" Like, how are you doing? What are you doing? How do you feel? What are you doing? And they would just speak into the phone. And so mm. you can do things that are completely open-ended. There's a lot to be said for that. So this is where people can can say as much as they want. They can connect the dots, draw the themes, be as reflective or not as they like. It can be, you know, like open-ended data, as you know, with, with kind of eth ethnographic or interview work. It, it can be its own trial. But so one possibility is just to open it up. And this gets much more kind of ethnographic or much more interview-based. It's like a approach to assessment in daily life. But a lot of people do it. I mean, these days you could have people take videos of themselves talking into it or talking to the phone or mm. take a video of their surroundings and say what they think about it. The other end is very constrained. And this is this is much more like you're taking the world of survey research with kind of closed-ended questions with one to five response scales. 
And that's what people are responding to every time with maybe a little, maybe no opportunity for kind of open-ended, um, open-ended discussion of what they're doing. And is it necessary? Is it, so what I'm doing is much more open. Yes. Is it necessary to have any closed question? Is that useful? Even if there's one or I'm leaning towards none, but one might be okay. Like on a scale of one to 10, like, or six or five or whatever, like the emotional impact of this event. But I don't think I need it really. Is it okay not to have it? Yeah. Yeah. Cause if you think about it, the, on the one hand you have the, the design. So you have like the sampling design, like when something happens, like I'm going to recruit this number of people. So it looks like you're, you have the strategy of like, you're going to study a small number of people in a lot of depth and fidelity. Yeah. So, so then the design is I'm going to have a small number of people. I'm going to study this one thing in a lot of depth. And so I'm going to sample using event-based sampling. So every time it happens, I'm going to collect information from them. And then it's sort of a separate thing of how you're going to try to measure the thing you want to measure. And in a sense, instead of doing repeated surveys, like here's a survey and we're going to repeat this survey eight times a day for 10 days. Right. It's almost like we're going to have a unstructured or semi-structured interview prompt. Yes. So just as you could do a survey once or many times, you could do a unstructured or semi-structured interview once or many times. So you could think about it that way. Like you're going to, you're going to prompt people for some sort of open-ended reflection like you would in, in an interview study, but they're just going to do this over time. And since you know, when they did it, you can, you can follow it over time as well. And I think this is the kind of study where it would help to have an interview at the end that could, it could let you follow up on things that they said, but it also could be a kind of a synthesis capstone of them reflecting on what they did throughout the study too. Oh, this is great. I feel so relieved um, that I found this book because I had never heard of event-based sampling. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I thought this is perfect. This is, and then it's kind of like as an up and coming researcher, sometimes you're thinking, is this okay? Like, am I, am I okay? Can we do this? And then, okay, this is established. It's okay. We're good. We can do this. Yeah. It helps to think of it. I think it's because the methods we usually learn in, in the social sciences, they're classics. It's like experiments Mm -hmm. and surveys and longitudinal studies. And there's just like a few like core prototypical kinds of studies, but you know, they, they can get kind of crossed and mashed up. So like if you did an interview we tend to think of when you do interviews, it's an interview, interview people once. But what if you did a short interview on something really specific every time something happened for three months? Mm, that's, yes. an, that's, that's an event contingent experience sampling study. But instead of using Likert scales and surveys, you did like a semi-structured interview prompt. So it's it's kind of like just a, it's just a, a mashup of ideas and in research. Yeah, I'm re- I'm really happy about it and 
again, like I mentioned before, the guidance from my PhD supervisors, the event that I wanted, again, the event that I was focusing on happens in the classroom. But then I took a step back and I look, what's the framework? Well, it's an ecological system. So these events might happen outside of the classroom. Mm -hmm. And then it's thinking, well, how do I get them to do this survey at the same time every week? And then and then I found this this method. I said, like, okay, this is 100% better. It's way more real life based. It's way, yep. you can get way more data, way more. You don't have to jam, you know, a square into a circle or whatever, you know, it's, it's nice. It's, uh, I don't know. I'm really happy that I found. And again, because you wrote the book on it, I can cite your book and say, yep, I'm doing this. <laughs> it's okay. It's totally, you can just cite the podcast. Yeah, totally, totally okay. He says, <laughs> Um, all right, a couple a couple uh, topics now that 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 part's finished. Um, all right, so this is a pop quiz for you. Hit me. Um, the person, the the psychologist, the pioneer of this of this sort of methodology. Do you know how to pronounce his name? I've I've been told it's Chick Sent Me High. What about his first name? I've heard Mahali, but I've also heard Mahai. Okay, so I uh, on, I looked this up before we started. Uh, the the person said Mihai Chick sent Mihai. Yeah, it's probably right, but I don't know if it's right or wrong. <laughs> have you ever got that question at a conference? Ooh, that there's just some things you just don't want to have to pronounce out loud. It's um, wow, his his work was just so cool. Yeah, I mean. He really single-handedly brought, kind of brought this method to life in the 70s. Like it had, it, it's like everything else. People have been doing it forever, but he really sparked it as a thing and just showed what you can do with it and just showed how you can answer like powerful questions. Um, but also I think he was the one who said it's not just a method, but it's a way of emphasizing how like, everyday people's everyday experience is just like fascinating and, and rich and, and ennobling. And that this kind of ethos of like everyday life is really powerful and exceptional in its own everyday <laughs> mundane way. I think that was, uh, that I think is part of a, that kind of ethos he, he kind of put to the method is also something I always really liked. Well, for people that have started their careers later, like me, you know, I, I was doing research a few years ago about anxiety and flow and these things. So his name yeah. kept popping oh, up. Yeah. And there's this book, uh, 2014, I think, Flow and the Foundations of Positive Psychology. If you, I went back and I looked at that book. Almost half the book is on ESM. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which is, which, which I just, I was like, wow, he's really focusing on this methodology before he gets into the nitty gritty of, of what he's thinking about it, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. And part of it's because flow is one of those states that is hard to study otherwise, because it has this quality that people experience it, but they don't meta experience it. Like part of inherent in it is you can't reflectively look at it and say, I'm in flow now. Cause then you might, <laughs> you might not be. So it's like a, a, a very strong experience that people are just experiencing rather than having an experience of experiencing. So it's, it's something that is 
easier to study if you interrupt people and ask them how they feel now than to try to get retrospective reports about because it's just it's not something people have good memories for because they're just in the flow of flow rather than stepping back and observing themselves in flow. Very, very cool. All right. Um, three more, three more questions. Yeah. Three more questions. Um, all right. First one, what's your, what's your current approach to writing with citation? So for example, mm. are you the type of person that I, I was doing, I was doing, uh, some writing co-writing with, with, uh, uh, the 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 other person, the other host of the podcast, we we alternate uh, guests. Chris Haswell, and we were doing a, a shared doc, and he would write a sentence, and then he would put um, two parentheses with some sort of mark, like add citation later, kind of thing. And I thought, oh, that's kind of that's kind of interesting. Where for me, I always kind of write the full sentence and then take the time to do the citation. And I was thinking, okay, well, if you, are, you actually know who the citation is, you can just go back and do it later. And so when I was like reading your book, um, and sometimes you, you would cite, uh, you would just give some examples of different things. I just feel like maybe that's a better way to do it. Like the writing can flow much better. You write your ideas and maybe indicate where you're going to put a citation later. Is that is that kind of how you approach it? I am definitely the kind of person who... <laughs> it sort of throws in the citations later. And I, I do a similar thing where I'll, like when I'm working on the, the first draft of a paper, I'll know there's a citation there. I might not remember what it is, or maybe I do, but in APA style, I just open parentheses and I'll just type cite mm. and slap a parentheses on it. And I usually type cite because it's easy for me to find. Just, you know, I'll, mm. I'll just... I'll always, I mean, for my manuscripts, I always do a control F for site and for stuff because I know I said that somewhere as a placeholder for something. What do you mean control I, F? Like in using Microsoft Word, like when I have a manuscript, I'll, I'll put site as like a placeholder for something and I'll sometimes just type stuff in all caps <laughs> as like, I need to put some stuff here. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think it's, you know, I think it, there's, there's this clearly there's two writing strategies i know there's even research on this i think kellogg in the psychology of writing talks about it that some people are they're just kind of hashers you know they do what the novels say they just kind of block it out rough rough draft get some momentum get some text to work with you know the spirit of no one ever gets editors blocked let's just get something on paper mm -hmm. work with it later and then others are kind of fastidious you know sentence by sentence brick by brick we build our masterpiece yeah and i feel bad so for some those people, people they I'm just like no they and i think it links to just broader conscientiousness and fastidiousness and perfectionism like some people just can't really some people in some ways are never really doing a first draft they're mm. they're building something perfect from the ground up and they tend to stop and put in their citations mm. whereas for me writing tends to be kind of a pain in the butt mm. and i think i think i just benefit from some momentum mm. and just not stopping to put the citations in there kind of helps me just kind of get some stuff down because sometimes i know what the citation is but a lot of times it's like I know my friend who works out in Wales did it. I can't remember it. And if I had to, to dip into Google Scholar or PsychInfo to find it, 
it kind of knocks you out of the mm. knocks you out of the I'm getting some sentences down and they're not great and I'm typing the word stuff more than I should. But by Jove, they're sentences. I so, like that. I'm going to be doing that this time. It's, it's a, I've learned a few things from the last big project I did till now. The, the other one is, um, and I think there's some controversy about Mendeley Reference Manager. I didn't know it was owned by <laughs> El, El Savior or whatever. El Savior. <laughs> uh, I, didn't, I didn't know that either. Yeah. This, there's this little, is like a shocking reveal at the end of the podcast. You didn't know that? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and there's some controversy about it. Um, but before I knew that, now I'm kind of stuck in this in this moral conundrum because mm-hmm. it's amazing. And I wish I had known about it before. But now that I know there's some controversy about it, maybe I'll look for another another one. Um, the other is I didn't know how to make a table of contents in Microsoft Word. can't believe how much time <laughs> I spent on that. Oh, boy, any, any, any other tips for people? Like I... I, I just can't believe it. I just didn't take the time to look on YouTube, make table of contents of Microsoft Word. I'm like, I'm putting all the dots down. It's like, what am I doing? What am I doing? <laughs> I I admit that one of my one of my one of my weird counterproductive, almost just self-defeating <laughs> behaviors over all these many years was never really just jumping into things like Zotero and reference managers. And I would keep like a word file of references and copy and paste them and things like that. And why, why I did that for so long is, is mystifying. It's, it's almost like, what is wrong with me? So I I've recently, like just in the last year, just said, I'm just not typing out or copying and pasting references anymore. It is not like 1997. It is time to get with the program and the system. So, and part of this is some of my friends here are are academic librarians and they're very passionate about Zotero and they marvel that anyone would still type out and copy and paste here in the year of our Lord, 2023. Zotero. They are right. Yeah. I like Zotero quite a bit. It's like, I haven't heard of it. It's like, um, and node Mendeley and all these, these other sorts of things, except it's, uh, it's open source and it's free. And that is why our librarians love it, being the true, the true keepers of the open source flame. Well, that's what and, Mendeley controversy is, because it, it was designed to be open source, and then El Savior bought it, mm. and uh, that's the controversy, right? All right, so Zotero is open source. That might probably be the better. It's one. quite good. It's good. It's got a word. It's got a word plugin. It's got a plugin for browsers that can sort of capture citation data from. Mm from web pages. It makes it easier when collaborating with people. It's like so many other things in life, I suppose that you're sort of skeptical and I just, I don't want to do it just because everyone else is doing it. I'm just being curmudgeonly and need to be different. And then when I do it, I'm just like, this is why everyone in the world who is reasonable does this for so long. Well, I kind of thought someone like you could have a graduate assistant do your citations. Is that wrong? No, I always do. Yeah, no, it's, it's, no, I mean, yeah. A lot of the stuff that I'm writing, I'm writing and it's, yeah. But would that be unreasonable to ask a graduate assistant to go back and and do the citations? Because I don't think it's unreasonable. I mean, I I, I always thought one day I'll be in a situation where I don't have to do this anymore. (laughs) Like that's not, that's that's not a good goal. (laughs) It's not a bad goal. Part of it's more the way 
the way we work a role here, I don't, I don't really have a lot of graduate assistants or, or. Wow. You pump out all of those papers without a graduate assistant. Well, I'm working, I'm working with graduate students. So I'm working with graduate students, but they're not, they're not assistants in the, in, in the sense of a research assistant where it's really, they're much more, they're much more collaborators. Like there's papers that they're writing the full first draft. And then there's papers where I'm writing the full first draft. And it would, it it actually hadn't occurred to you. It would almost take longer to say, Hey, I just wrote this 15 page manuscript. Could you like go, go throw in the references? They would, they would probably give me the eye roll of all eye rolls. Like, (laughs) I guess that's a, that was a bad dream. Well, I guess Zotero, I guess is the, is the answer. Uh, It's pretty good. Um, all right, two more questions, then I'll let you go. Um, what, what are your favorite words to throw in academic writing? I did notice vexing appeared a lot in this book. I was like, oh yeah, you got you got that one in. I was feeling vexed. I mean, this this, this was a tough. This was a bit of a this was a bit of a tough book. I don't know if I have if I have a set, but I do. I it tends to roll over time. I do keep a little file of words that I just sort of find funny, and. I'll, I'll just sort of sneak them in. Sometimes I'll try to see how many I can sneak into a manuscript. And in this case, before Catherine, like more wisely in her, in her writerly maturity strikes them. Um, <laughs> I love those. I think those are, those are good. I think for a while I was trying to sneak in ineluctable into just about everything. What does that mean? Uh, uh, it's a little bit like, it's actually, it's, it's one of these funny, it's one of these funny, like, False negatives where it's not the there is no electable. So any electable is not the opposite of electable. I don't know if electable is even a word. Um but it's just kind of a indescribable, I suppose, hmm. offhand. I hope it really means that. <laughs> um all right, last last question. I was listening to a podcast the other day and it was really bad. It was just awful. But there was there was one topic that came up that I thought was kind of interesting. And I wanted to end it with end the podcast with this. Um so in the beginning of the podcast, I said, well, I, 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 I'm really glad I found this book and like, thank you for writing it. Um, and I guess the topic is like, do you believe in altruism? Because the person, mm-hmm. the one person on the podcast that I was listening to said, he doesn't believe in altruism because if you do good for others, you actually feel good yourself. And I actually looked up the definition of altruism, uh, there it is. Um, disinterested and selfless concern for the well-being of others. Zoology, behavior of an animal that benefits another at its own expense. So that's a little bit different. That's almost like sacrifice. So I, what? What a, do you believe in altruism? Does that exist? <laughs> it's funny you mentioned this because this, this is bringing back, uh, I'm having sort of flashbacks to graduate school where at the University of Kansas when I was there, had uh, one of the professors in a program was was Dan Batson. He published under C. Daniel Batson. He's really a famous social psychologist. And this was his scene. He studied uh, helping behavior, pro-social behavior, and he was really famous for arguing for altruism. And he hmm. he's known for what we call the empathy altruism hypothesis. Huh. And the idea that there they're 
was real altruism and it was rooted in the, the emotion of empathy and it's, it's, it's behavior that's just motivated by the concern for others. And I suspect he also had a somewhat jaded view of human nature and that people were often <laughs> sort of self-serving and um, kind of sketchy. And I think being a psychologist, you, you kind of feel that way about human nature. But he said, but at least sometimes it can happen that and if you encourage perspective taking where people take the perspective of another person mm. who's struggling, that you can get a kind of an empathic concern and people are motivated solely to improve the other person's welfare. And I hope it's true. I but think it would explain a lot. That wasn't the question. I Well, maybe I asked the wrong question. Do you believe in altruism? Do you believe it's true? Well, I don't know if Tam Batson's fully retired. He might listen to this. I guess I have to say yes. Wow. Okay. I would. I would think so. I think. I think part of it is um, part of so part of being a psychologist, where you you just focus so much on human variability and just how how widely variable people are, and especially in personality psychology and just studying individual differences. I think you you have to accept that some people are just so uh, dark and irredeemable, mm. and that you can you can accept that there are there are the angels among us too. And so I think that's why I think you if you're going to be cynical about the the darker side of human nature, I think you have to crack the door open a little bit that there are angels too. Well, that was the metaphor. I mean, not 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 to pl do a play on words, but that was the metaphor one of the people said. Where uh, Victoria's Secret, they abandoned their angel program, and they include plus size models now. And one argument was, are they doing it for altruism to to help uh, young girls or women of all different shapes and sizes to feel good about themselves, or are they doing it for business perspective, where they need to sell larger sized underwear? And there's probably a little mix of both, right? So he believed that no one, especially a company, no company or politician is ever truly altruistic. There's always another factor there. I tend to be cynical to believe that to be true in some ways as well. I, I think if you're talking about companies or politicians, I would I would completely rule it out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Especially Victoria's Secret. Like, goodness gracious, we're not we're not talking about doctors without borders here. I right. Mean, this is like a a skeevy, a skeevy lingerie company in the mall, um, and politicians, my word, if you meet them in person, they're like going to be the most contemptible people you've ever met. Mm. So, but for the rest of us, right. right. Hope springs eternal. Right. All right. Well, this is, um, this is the awkward, this is the awkward part of the, the podcast where I ask you to stay on the line, even though I'm going to close and say goodbye. Um, sure. the, the book is, uh, researching daily life. A Guide to Experience Sampling and Daily Diary Methods. Also check out Citation 116 where we talk about how to write a lot. Check out uh, the website uh, where – I, I don't think you list all your publications, but there's a list of, I think, recent books. Mm -hmm. And this, this one's on there. Any, anything else that people should check out? <laughs> I'm, I'm like – sad when it comes to like i have no social media or online presence so people could always just google my name or email me but beyond that i have i have no i have no platform as they say I'm we have the here. you have the website 
don't don't let your university take it away from you. Well, I think it's just going to have to get migrated to some something else. I think it is. I should really back that thing up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, th- thanks so much for for coming on the podcast, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks a lot. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.